So I think it's important to note uh, right at the top here that we don't really know how long Brian Kemp and uh, Lefner has have been talking. Did I even do it? Did I do it right? No. Lef Leffler. Leffler. L E R. L E R. Leffler. Okay. I don't think. Uh, ugh. I think right at the top. This is the cold. Yeah, it's so bad. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> clap, 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 clap. All right. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host, and we are back after a little break for Thanksgiving. Uh, joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be back after the break. Yeah, did you get a chance to eat a lot of turkey and relax a little bit? I'm more of a ham man myself, but yes, I did get to do that. And, uh, uh, much needed break. My girlfriend's family did the largest turkey I have ever seen. Um, so we had a great break. Um, so on today's podcast, we are going to talk about decision day for Governor Brian Kemp. He is scheduled to appoint Kelly Leffler to the U.S. Senate to replace Senator Johnny Isaacson as he retires at the end of 2019. We are recording on Tuesday night, so he hasn't officially made that appointment yet. But all signs point to him nominating Kelly Leffler on Wednesday morning. So by the time you hear this, she will probably have been appointed. So we are going to talk about her appointment to the Senate and what that means for Democrats' chances as they look forward to that jungle primary where Leffler will have to defend her seat in 2020. But we wanted to start, unfortunately, with some somber news. Over the break, the Georgia political world was sad to receive the news that Jay Powell, the chairman of the House Rules Committee in the state legislature, passed away. He passed away at a Republican event uh, as they were preparing for legislative session. Um, so prayers and, and condolences to Jay Powell's family on his passing. He received a lot of tributes from both sides of the aisle, from people who uh, really said it was a joy to work with him in the state legislature. And, and so that's certainly a big loss for the House. Yeah, it's it's definitely a big loss. Uh, Jay Powell is a longtime state representative, and um, as you mentioned, was fairly bipartisan. Uh, it's it's pretty easy to be Hagig as a rules chair, um, but the you know fact that Georgia has been blessed that our past two have been uh, pretty solid, and you know while obviously uh, we have lots of policy disagreements as far as trying to be a fair arbiter, uh, you know both uh, the deceased Chairman Meadows and Chairman Powell have set a good example for that. And uh, it's definitely a heavy, heavy loss and um, hate to have any uh, of our public servants uh, go out that way. And so he definitely will be remembered for his service and, you know, appreciate uh, the time he did give to the state of Georgia. And then another bit of news to hit on here before we get to our big topics Today, on Tuesday, the day that we're recording, Kamala Harris ended her campaign for the presidency. Her campaign was the subject of a lot of profiles in Politico and the New York Times over the Thanksgiving break that really laid bare the struggles that her campaign was having. Luke, what was your reaction to Kamala Harris dropping out of this race? It, it's really interesting to me how surprising and unsurprising this is. Um, I think this is worth talking about just because um, going into our race in the fall with the different candidates running for Senate, um, I think there's a lot of 
opportunities for them to learn from this campaign and avoid the mistakes it made. Uh, the other interesting frame for me is I'm, I'm currently reading David Pluff's uh, Audacity to Win, which is his book on how uh, you know the Obama campaign won the very heavily contested 08 primary and um, you know the general election after it. And the thing that I really have noted from that is like going into this race before you know most of the candidates had announced looking at Kamala Harris considering Kamala Harris she was a you know top line contender I mean in the early polls she was really someone that people talked a lot about and got really good numbers and it seemed that like while she would have big moments there was no driving force behind the vision of one, like, what is this campaign about? Like, why Kamala, why now? And also their path to, like, how they're going to win the nomination was always really blurry to me. And those are two things that, like, Pluff really uh, hits on in his book of just, like, how important it is to have a clear vision of what you want to do as president and, like, have your campaign be a reflection of that and having a strategy to win. And, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of people have been talking about, I think, uh, um, you know, in the uh, articles talking about the problems the campaign had, just, like, how many slogans they went through <laughs> and the fact that, they like, every other week it felt like they had a slogan and to the fact that, like, some staffers were kind of laughing, like, you know, there was, uh, like, uh, a slogan for every season, whereas Obama's campaign in 08 literally just had one the whole time, basically, with changing we can believe in, and uh, compared that to Hillary's campaign that had many, many uh, slogans and didn't seem to have as concrete of a direction. So, yeah, you know, going looking at the start of the race, I think it's super surprising that someone like Kamala Harris has dropped out before Iowa. But looking at how the past couple months have gone for her candidacy, I'm a lot less surprised. So what this means now, at least as things stand today, is that with Kamala Harris's exit from the race, all of the candidates who qualified currently for the December debate will be white candidates. Currently, Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard are just slightly, they're kind of on the bubble in terms of qualifying. I think they, between them, only need one or two additional polls. Uh, But it's striking to me that Kamala Harris will not be in this debate because she is leaving the race. Cory Booker has yet to qualify and seems like he will not qualify. But Tom Steyer is qualified for the debate. It helps to be a millionaire. Um, Or a billionaire. It does help to be. Yeah, he's a billionaire. It does help to be. A billionaire, you can buy your way in. We'll talk a little more about something like that later. Um, But it's notable here that candidates like Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Julian Castro is another one that comes to mind. They haven't been able to move the needle for African-American voters. Joe Biden in particular has maintained a high level of support among African-American voters, particularly in South Carolina. That's an early state, so it matters in terms of how this primary develops. And the thing that kind of crawled its way into my head today as this news broke was, I wonder if Stacey Abrams regrets not running. Do you have any thoughts on on whether she might be regretting that a little bit with Kamala Harris's exit? It's hard to tell for sure. I think Abrams did not suffer from the key problem that Harris did and that Abrams had a pretty clear convincing argument of like why she wanted to be the governor of Georgia and did a really good job of talking about that 90% of the time and executing, you know, the same message and not, you know, trying out a new message every week. I don't know if she had the same intense motivation for like 
Abrams for president right now uh, that she probably would need um, to win. I, I think her heart really does seem to be in the, the you know, fair fight action, uh, you know, effort because she, I almost feel like she's more visible and more passionate about fair fight than she was about her race for governor. And so I think in that sense, that specific mission has really motivated her. And I think she's going to be able to do a lot of good there that running for president wouldn't have let her do. And I think since her heart really does seem to be with being the governor of Georgia, because, you know, she has mused that, of course, she'd want to be president. I mean, who in elected politics hadn't at least thought about it uh, late at night or created a spreadsheet thinking about how they would get there. But I think her real focus seems to be just, you know, this is just me waxing poetic on what I've seen of her say in, in public and reading articles about her. Um, you know, she seems to be really passionate about the fair fight um, effort and the idea of running against Brian Kemp again. So I think she could have suffered from what Kamala suffered if she had ran because of the fact that um, she had, a, she has a much clearer vision of why she wants to do those other things. And I don't know if she has as clear of a vision of why she should be president right now. And then the other thing is the campaigns that I've seen Abrams run, she's been a real instrumental player in it. You know, there's, there's some uh, people that would say that Abrams likes to be her own campaign manager uh, as well. And so, you know, that's something you just can't do uh, on a presidential level. And so it'll be interesting kind of see, to see how that plays out. But I think the last thing to consider on like whether she should feel bad for not running is I think an issue with the electorate right now is a lot of people aren't actually tuned in that much um, and that people aren't following it nearly as closely as like you and I follow it. And so I think the reason why Harris and uh, Booker and uh, Julian Castro and even Gabbard to an extent have had trouble catching on is not because of their qualities as a candidate or, um, you know, the races they've run. I think it's a lot more to do with the fact that the people who are doing well are the people who were already pretty well known before the race started you know like most people knew who biden was most people knew who bernie was and then warren has been in the national spotlight i think in a far bigger way than a lot of other national democrats have been and for a little bit longer than um harrison booker and then Buttigieg, who's the other one he started super early. I mean, he, he really followed the Jimmy Carter strategy of just like starting is so incredibly early. And I think his team executed excellently. Like, how do we get free media? How do we get our name out there? How do we get people who aren't paying attention to notice us? And I think they were so, so good at that, that, you know, I don't know if Abrams would have been able to execute those things. I mean, she's immensely talented and maybe she would have, uh, but in this field, I think it's pretty hard uh, to do that. And so I, I think she's doing great where she is. And so I, it's it's definitely an interesting thought experiment. But, you know, I think if her ultimate goal is to be the governor of Georgia, then she's making the right decision by doing this fair fight thing, filling in a hole that the party desperately needs. Because um, I think long term, that will endear a lot more support to her uh, thing if she'd run for president in this giant field. Because, 
you know, most people aren't going to be the nominee. In fact, only one will. And so, you know, in that large of a field, I think Abrams probably did herself a favor just staying above it. Uh, Because now she's in a position where pretty much any candidate who wins the primary will consider her as a VP option. And I think if she had run uh, campaigning, inevitably that would have hurt her chances there just because you kind of get in fisticuffs with people. And so she's kind of kept herself in the conversation without getting uh, her hands dirty, which I think is a good position for someone who is interested in higher office. Well, if she is keeping her eyes on Brian Kemp, then she is keeping her eyes on a man who is making moves. So let's leave the presidential conversation there for now and talk about Brian Kemp's appointment to the U.S. Senate. So defying Donald Trump's wishes, Governor Kemp appointed multimillionaire finance executive Kelly Leffler to succeed Johnny Isaacson in the U.S. Senate. Her appointment followed a scramble by Representative Doug Collins, President Trump, and their allies to secure that appointment for Collins. Leffler enters the Senate as a relatively unknown figure in Georgia politics, so she will be somebody who is very interesting to watch. Uh, Let's discuss how her appointment shapes the race for Isaacson's seat in the long term and whether we've heard the last of Collins. The, The place to start, I think, Luke, is basically... How did we get here? I think if if you've been paying attention to Georgia politics, you were probably somewhat aware that Governor Kemp set up an application process for the U.S. Senate. We've talked about the names that have popped up in that process. But basically, beyond the list of people who had applied, there were practically no hints about where the governor might go until the very end of the period. And right before he announced that the application period would end. Kelly Leffler, who is a multimillionaire finance executive, she is the executive of of a financial services company, and her husband runs the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange. She applied for this seat at the very last minute, and it quickly became a competition between Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins. And Luke, can you sort of let us know what happened next? Because during the holiday week, this competition really blew up with some reporting from the AJC. How did we get from Kelly Leffler throwing her hat in to her getting the nod from Governor Kemp? So right at the top, I think it's important to say that we really don't know how long uh, Kemp and Leffler were talking. uh, And you know, so we, he could have been considering her for a really long time, or she kind of just popped up at the last minute and Kemp was really uh, interesting her. But what definitely happened is shortly after she uh, put her name in the ring officially, uh, Kemp and uh, her went up to see Donald Trump and Kemp wanted to, you know, introduce uh, them and, you know, let Trump know that that is who he was leaning towards appointing. And apparently that meeting did not go very positively. And Trump was like, what the hell, man, just appoint Collins. Cause I am Trump and I told you to appoint Collins. And you know, why, why did you come here? I, th- I think the quote was uh, from Trump along was something along the lines, like, why did you come here? If you've already made up your mind. Um, and so that meeting did not go great. And uh, since then, the Trump show, uh, both from like Trump himself, but also Sean Hannity and Collins himself and a lot of uh, Collins' allies in the House have been bringing Brian Kemp over his decision and have basically been telling him to get the hell in line and appoint Collins because that is what Donald Trump wants. And one of the reasons that Trump has advocated so forcefully for Collins, although 
it is worth noting here that since news of this appointment has become public, basically all but confirmed on Tuesday night as we're recording, that Trump has been a big Collins backer because Collins is the leading Republican on the House Judiciary Committee who is defending the president in the face of the impeachment inquiry from House Democrats. Um, it's Kyle, are, are you making the assumption that Donald Trump thinks someone should be hired because he's seen them on TV? Well, it is pretty well documented, Luke, that that is the best way to get Donald Trump's attention is to go and be a very public defender of the president on his favorite channel, Fox News. Yeah, and on, on that metric, Collins has uh, done an excellent job. So he, you know, and by Donald Trump's hiring criteria, he is overly qualified for the position. But he is not the one that is going to get the job, apparently. Kelly Leffler is going to get the nod. And really what what I've observed from the Georgia political conversation is at a very base level, nobody has any idea who Kelly Leffler is. She is the CEO of a financial services firm. She also co-owns the WNBA's Atlanta Dream. And she she's never held public office before. There, so there's some there's some reminiscence here of David Perdue entering the Senate as somebody who has never held public office before. And she actually considered a run for the U.S. Senate in 2014 for the seat that Purdue currently holds, but apparently she decided against it. But beyond sort of the little basic biographical details, we don't really have a sense of Kelly Leffler's politics. She did speak with the Georgia Federation of Republican Women six years ago when she was presumably considering this Senate bid. And I listened back to her speech. It was, uh, it was struck me as like Republican platitudes. There was taking the opportunity to praise President Reagan to talk about how Margaret Thatcher was tough as nails and to talk about how regulations were slowing down the business climate, slowing down hiring, slowing down growth. Very like retro 2013, 2014 Republican arguments, Mitt Romney-esque arguments that definitely preceded the rise of, of Trump and and his brand of populism. So based on that little bit of detail, Luke, and the fact that we don't know much about her, what what should we anticipate about her tenure in the Senate or the reception that she is likely to receive from fellow Republicans when she actually takes the job? Well, the first thing I would point out is, especially because it's a lot easier to see what's happening in the national political conversation. Most of the like Georgia elected officials, and by that I mean like state and local Republicans, not the federal Congress folks, have been pretty positive uh, about Kemp's decision, have been very supportive of him, and have you know, been like, hey, this is Kemp's call, lay off, <laughs> like you guys aren't from Georgia. Um, and so I think that is notable considering how uh, popular the president is among Georgia Republicans that uh, they have been stepping up for him. And so on that front, uh, I suspect once this appointment is made, a lot of people will consider falling in line and just, you know, hoping for the best out of the appointment because it is true that um if you haven't been watching georgia politics since brian kemp got elected and became governor 
this seems really confusing and like like in a way that you just can't even imagine someone would appoint someone who pretty much none of the voters knew. But to be honest, I regret not anticipating this more because of just how unorthodox all of Kemp's appointments have been. I mean, when the insurance commissioner had to resign due to incredible allegations of corruption on his part, Kemp appointed like a sheriff that people really didn't know. Uh, and, you know, it's just like everyone was shocked and surprised by that. So, you know, that being said, it really shouldn't be surprising to us uh, that Kemp kind of came out of left field and appointed someone who doesn't have political experience. Uh, that being said, I think you prefaced this appointment correctly in saying that, you know, David Perdue, in a lot of ways, is a model for the kind of candidate that we suspect that Loeffner might be uh, in, or Leffler. I don't know how to pronounce her name. We, I mean, this is, I think this is like the best indication of how little we know about her. We don't really know the right way to say her name yet, but I digress. Um, I think what we're going to see from her and part of the reason she probably was appointed is that you would have to be sleeping under a rock to think that this election is not going to be highly competitive. I think Republicans still have a, le- a leg up in Georgia and it's going to take a lot of work and organization on the part of Georgia Democrats to be able to win this election. But at no point are Democrats not viable in the, this election. At no point are Democrats not a threat. And so I think at least part of Kemp's calculation here or his political strategist who you know suggested that this is not a terrible idea is in the fact that she can definitely self-fund and that if um, you're in a situation with a candidate that is running against a robust Democratic opposition, having someone that can self-fund when you have to raise a bunch of money for two Senate races is just an inherent advantage from almost any other candidate. Now, that being said, I think the extent that uh, any candidate could self-fund versus Collins' ability to fundraise, I think it's going to be pretty similar. But, you know, I, I, I think that is part of the reason why she probably got picked for this situation. I kind of feel like I didn't hit on your question as much as you wanted me to, which was like, what is she going to do? And I think, honestly, we, we have no idea of knowing. Yeah, I think we have no idea. I think we have no way of knowing, but I think this selection signifies an acceptance by Governor Kemp the reality that President Trump is eroding Republican support in the suburbs and that Kelly Leffler is a candidate who he believes can bring some of that that support back into the fold. I mean, I think if you run a counterfactual where Donald Trump doesn't win the Republican nomination and instead Marco Rubio does and he gets elected president in 2016, Brian Kemp doesn't win the Georgia governor's race by only 50,000 votes that the reaction to Trump as a very polarizing figure and the way in which districts have been drawn and the way in which Republican support is structured in the state means that Republicans are losing ground in vital areas in the suburbs where their majority in the state house is in jeopardy, where one congressional seat, Rob Woodall's seat, is in, is in jeopardy of being taken by the Democrats and where they've already lost the 6th Congressional District to Lucy McBath in 2018. So I think that that signifies that 
Republicans feel they have a vulnerability in the suburbs. And I thought it was notable. Some of the defenders, and we'll talk about some of the criticism of Leffler here in a second, but some of the defenders that have spoken up on her behalf have really been commenting on the political calculation that Governor Kemp is making in this decision. Tim Eccles, who is on the Public Service Commission, he noted that Leffler would be somebody who he believes could bring back some of that report, some of that support for Republicans in the suburbs. All of this was focused on her as a political asset and not necessarily her as a person who brings a unique skill set to the job. And so I I think that, I mean, I don't want to sell her short, but based on what we know about her now and about the strategic consideration, she might be a relatively low profile senator who is not on TV every day defending the president, is not sort of the leader of the Democrat, is not the leader of the Republican response to Democrats on impeachment, but instead is sort of working behind the scenes, is kind of a Republican team player, and is somebody who is going to focus on issues like human trafficking and uh, the opioid crisis and all of the things that you might expect from somebody like Karen Handel in the 6th Congressional District, because her audience is the voters who have moved from the Republican to the Democratic Party, largely in response to their distaste for Donald Trump. Yeah, I think if that argument is right, because again, we haven't seen her, you know, I uh, we haven't seen her speak about like why she wanted to be a senator. We haven't heard her say or do anything. Um, so we're having to make a lot of assumptions here. But I think that's probably a good theory. And I think the other thing on that front is that if that is the route she goes, that in that is a 2019 version of Johnny Isaacson. Like, that is a, I am boring, I will do good policy work, you don't have to worry about me, I am trying to be a good senator. Uh, which, as a model, uh, was a pretty good one for Isaacson. It made him pretty well-respected and loved around the state, um, and it made, uh, you know, make him pretty electorally formidable. And it is pretty distinct in how it's not what David Perdue has done. Um, and it really wasn't what Saxe Chambliss did before uh, Perdue. So on that front, I think it's a, it would be an interesting dichotomy to see uh, the, a newcomer in this era try that route because I feel like most of the people in the Senate who are newer uh, have definitely not taken that approach. So the anticipation of that being her approach is not winning her allies among conservative grassroots activists, particularly people who are activists on the issue of abortion, who would like to see abortion outlawed. She was criticized by Marjorie Danfelser, the president of the Susan B. Anthony group, an anti-abortion group, um, who pointed to her connections with Grady Hospital as a as as she described as a facility that was a training ground for abortionists, she said uh, she also criticized Loeffler's affiliation with the WNBA uh, because the WNBA donated part of ticket proceeds this last season to Planned Parenthood. Um, there was a lot of criticism on the issue of abortion and on the fact that she does not have a verifiable record 
in support of banning abortion um, and doing the kinds of things that conservative activists would like to see done on this issue. But she also had a lot of criticism driven at her from conservative media personalities that are close to the president, people like Sean Hannity, who drove calls opposing Leffler to Governor Kemp's office from his radio show the from his radio show the other day, and Mark Levin, another conservative radio commentator who compared Kemp to Romney and said that he was about to point a rhino, meaning Loeffler, to the Senate. Luke, what do you think about those criticisms? And do you think that they really undermine Leffler as a candidate before she even takes the job? To the extent that all of this conservative backlash will encourage someone like Collins or maybe Collins and multiple people to run against her, I think it is incredibly damaging because it's going to be hard to get that first impression, that first taste out of Republican activist mouth, I think, about her. And I think with that, it is going to hurt her. The thing I am really surprised about with this, uh, there's sort of two angles on it. The first angle is my firm expectation is that when Kip appoints her, she is going to come out and say literally everything every conservative would want her to say. She will say, I will support Donald Trump, period. I don't care if he shoots someone on Fifth Avenue. I don't care what he did in Ukraine. I support Donald Trump. I think abortion should be illegal. I think X, Y, and Z. Name your conservative issue. She will say the right. She will say what they want to hear. Um, I think she will vote the way she wants them to vote. And so... And the reason I think that is because she is being appointed by Brian Kemp. And I don't think Brian Kemp would appoint someone who would actively work against those things. It just would not make sense. And, you know, it is, as uh, his staff members have pointed out, his sole authority to pick someone. And I think it would just be very bizarre if he picked someone who on, like, the biggest issues of the day in the Republican Party disagreed with him on every single one of them. That would seem very strange. Um, So, you know, Kemp Kemp appoints unorthodox people, but he doesn't really tend to appoint people who don't agree with him. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the... Republicans who are against this appointment and hitting Kemp on it so hard have really painted themselves in a bigger corner than Kemp's been painting again because they really are putting themselves in a position that they have to either stick to their guns and be like, she is the wrong person to be the senator from the state of Georgia. That is why you know Doug Collins or some other conservative should run against her and threaten the Senate seat because it is going to be a jungle primary. And if the Republican vote is split, it introduces the possibility for a Democrat to be in the runoff or worse for them, better for the state of Georgia, two Democrats in a runoff, and they completely are left out. Um, So I think that's a real possibility. And I'm just surprised that they are threatening it or the more likely scenario in my mind for a lot of these people, not all of them, that she like I said, says all the right things, votes all the ways they want her to vote, and then they're like, well, I guess she's all right, and then have to turn around and strongly support her, and two years from now, strongly support Kemp when he runs for re-election. So I just don't see why they are burning every bridge around them and themselves over this appointment when it's Brian Kemp. He's not going to appoint Michelle Nunn. He's not going to appoint... Nancy Pelosi. He's going to you know, he's going to appoint someone that agrees with him on almost everything. 
Well, and this was basically the needle that was threaded by Eric Erickson on his radio show on Tuesday afternoon. He talked about his trust for Governor Kemp and the fact that Governor Kemp has delivered on the promises that the conservative grassroots is upset at him about over this appointment. He did sign the heartbeat abortion ban bill um, so that some of these criticisms aren't necessarily warranted. But at the same time, Leffler and Kemp need to do the outreach to the conservative grassroots to basically shore up their support and sort of head off a challenger from the right. Um, but I think that this does raise the interesting prospect for how Democrats will respond. Um, Collins, before the appointment became semi-official, again, it'll be official by the time you hear this, but we're pretty sure it's locked down at this point. Um, before it became official, he was floating that he might run anyways. Um, if there is enough conservative angst with Leffler or if she is not a vocal defender of the president when impeachment goes to the Senate, you can imagine an avenue there for a conservative challenger. So what does this do for Democrats, Luke, who are looking at this race now, looking at potentially Republican disarray and a chance to win this race outright before going to a runoff on general election day in November of 2020. How do you think that this shapes the way they should approach anointing the person who should be the leading Democrat in that field or potentially failing to do so and and having a free for all like Republicans might? I, I think the risk of a free for all having a, catastrophic consequence has been reduced if the republicans have infighting and end up running two or three major candidates but i think the cost of not coalescing around someone becomes significantly higher at that point um because you are right i mean this does open up for the scenario that a democrat could win the whole thing in november it's possible it'd be very hard but it's possible. I think that's a huge possibility that Democrats should really consider. I I generally am pro-primary. I think they help candidates in the end. Um, There's there's some research that (laughs) debates that that's less true on higher level elections. But still, I think in this scenario, having a not bloody primary would be very helpful to the Democrat candidate. But the issue I think we run into is there's really no clear consensus on who that person should be. I feel like the only person, you know, cause like one of the tests for this, this isn't the only test in my mind, but one of the tests would be like, who could you run that would make Matt Lieberman drop out uh, his, his very strange candidacy. And the answer in my mind to that is like Stacey Abrams is like the only person that might make him drop out. I think. And Abrams has been pretty clear that she's not going to run. I don't think she's going to change her mind on that um, for everything I laid out in the earlier segment. So with that in mind, like who can you run that will at least not let like convince anyone else to run, right? Like how do you keep other people from getting in, even if you can't get Matt Lieberman to not run? And like the list of people in Georgia that could do that is pretty slim. And then the list of people in Georgia who are willing to run is even slimmer, So I think it's going to be difficult for Democrats to recruit someone for this position because of the fact that if you are someone in Georgia who has a real shot of winning this seat, you probably have a lot to lose because you're probably elected to the state house or state Senate right now. And if you 
run for the second seat, you have to give up that seat you currently have. And it's going to be a hard race. And so, I, I mean, I don't envy the uh, folks at the DPG right now who are trying to, pro- pro- if I had to guess, probably trying to convince someone to run rather than trying to call a long list of people who are dying to jump at it. Uh, because, I mean, there's a reason that Abrams isn't running for it. And I think a big part of it is the fact that she doesn't really want to be a senator. But I think the like uphill climb is not an insignificant factor in why she's not running. So based on what we know about Leffler today, what is the argument that Democrats make against her in trying to win that seat outright? I think as I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about Uh, some messaging research that Crooked Media released based on polling in Wisconsin. Obviously, Wisconsin and Georgia are very different. But running directly at President Trump and his actions on the economy, trying to erode his support, given that people generally believe, because economic conditions are good at this point, that Trump has been a good steward for the economy. But talking about things like the trade war, that this messaging research lays out has specifically hurt Wisconsin farmers, but if we, as we've talked about before, has also hurt farmers in Georgia. I'm talking about the new tax law that gives tax breaks to companies that ship jobs overseas, while job growth is not necessarily as strong here at home. It also strikes me that sort of a redux of the Obama message against Mitt Romney, given that she is characterized as a similar kind of candidate, maybe the place to start. Yet, David Perdue also entered the Senate as somebody who had success in business and who had never held elected office before and largely ran on his bona fides as a job creator and as a good steward of the economy. And Georgia is still a relatively conservative and relatively business-friendly state compared to other bluer states. So like, what is what is some of the messaging that you think is going to be effective or that Democrats should road test in trying to argue against Loeffler's candidacy? I think it really is going to depend on, like, how much is she Johnny Isaacson versus how much is she David Perdue? And we don't really know that yet. Because um, I, I think it would be an oversimplification uh, to commit to, <laughs> you know, a message until she kind of makes it clear which route she's going. But that being said, I think, the really important things for Democrats to think about is just like what tangible difference will you make in your the way you represent Georgia? And I think the you know easiest thing to hit them on is that Lochner is probably going to go up there or Leffler is going to go up there and probably toe the party line, probably do exactly what Brian Kemp's been doing and agree with Donald Trump, no matter what he says. If the sky is purple, according to Donald Trump, it's purple, according to her. And there's been lots of things that this administration has done to hurt Georgians. And I think being very specific and loud about that and, you know, seeing what she thinks is acceptable and asking, you know, Georgians if they think that's acceptable and if they want four more years or in her case, two uh, more years of senators who aren't uh, willing to stand up for what they believe in and to stand up for the state when it would cause them to butt heads with the president. Um, I think that is going to be a very strong argument because of issues like the fact that it took forever for Georgia to get disaster relief because of 
Trump's own personal politics of what he believed was best for him and who his supporters were and who deserved the money and who didn't. You know, I think that's a great example for Democrats to run against because she's going to have a minimal record and she's probably going to use a lot of her own money to fund messaging so that the people of Georgia have an introduction to her and that's going to be hard to fight. But, you know, luckily since both her and uh, Purdue come from a finance background, both of them are... Uh, highly, highly, highly wealthy. I think a lot of the criticisms that the four candidates running f- against Purdue have been making uh, will resonate against her as well. And if um, you know they get their acts together and start being a little more coherent and structured and organized on how they're messaging against Purdue, I, I mean, I don't think it's going to be. It's going. I don't think it's going to require radically different messages. Um, I think it's just a effort that the um, candidates are going to have to make to tailor their criticisms to specifically what Lefner does. One more thing before we leave this topic, I thought that there was a certain irony to Isaacson's replacement causing unrest among anti-abortion groups, given that Isaacson, when he first entered the Senate, also caused unrest among anti-abortion groups. Um, Matt Collins, who was running in the GOP primary against Isaacson in 2004, called him the pro-abortion candidate. And Isaacson, and Isaacson actually ran for the Senate the first time in 1996 as a supporter of abortion rights. He cut a TV ad during the Republican primary in 1996 with his wife and his daughter, where he said that Republicans who wanted to pass a constitutional amendment banning abortion were criminalizing women and their doctors. That's messaging that we've heard recently on the debate over the heartbeat bill. And the message that he sent in that ad, you know, he did not win his way into the Senate in 1996, still lingered when he was successful in 2004. Um, It is just interesting history repeating itself a little bit. We're still having the same kind of debates two decades later um, as Kelly Leffler takes over this job. So we'll leave that discussion there for now. Lots of interesting things to look forward to. And I think we're going to leave this episode there. We went a little long with this topic, maybe too long, but I think it's actually one of the most fascinating things that's happened in Georgia politics in quite a while. Um, You'll hear from us again on Friday. We've got a little more Peach Pod for you this week. But for now, take care, and we'll talk to you all again soon. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.